Chapter 18, Wilderness Path, a novel by Mary Jane Schneider. New Canaan. Lilacs were blooming along the path as the weavers and the gamins gathered at the Mennonite meeting house. Hannah looked with envy at her brother Joshua and his bride Rebecca, holding hands, their eyes scarcely leaving each other as they said their marriage vows. Hannah had been a witness to their love from its beginning. Rebecca Gaiman had become her brother's sweetheart the first time he chased her around the meeting house. He was 12 and she was 6. Joshua loved to tease, and he especially loved to tease Rebecca. With two older sisters, she was not inclined to take teasing without a challenge. When she was particularly exasperated with him, she would call him Josh. He hated the name, except when he heard it from Rebecca's lips. Of course Rebecca and Joshua would marry. The Gaimans, Miriam and Elias and their daughters had survived the sea voyage, along with the weavers. As neighbors, their lives were entwined from the moment they arrived in New Canaan. Hannah knew that her mother looked at Rebecca with a bittersweet fondness, for Miriam Gaiman and her mother had been pregnant at the same time. Rebecca was born only a few days before Rachel died. The question was, when would the Miriam and Elias allow their youngest daughter to marry? Hannah watched Joshua's love give him patience. As the biblical Jacob waited for his Rachel, Joshua waited for Rebecca to grow up. He built a home for them in the meadow next to the Gaiman's house for he would work the game in fields, and someday the land would belong to him. No ordinary home. He built a three-room house, with a kitchen and parlor facing the front of the house, and a bedroom behind the parlor. The parlor was heated with an iron stove, brought from Germantown. He cut and planed the floorboards himself. No half-log floor for his Rebecca. Hannah was amused how love had turned his careless energy into dedicated purpose. Rebecca made the down mattress and the quilted coverlet for their marriage bed. She dipped enough candles and boiled enough soap to last for years. On the first day in May, the morning of her 16th birthday, she and Joshua gathered with their families and friends at the meeting house. Love shone from their eyes as they said their vows. Surrounded by noise and laughter, the celebration feast lasted all day. The proud parents of the bride and bridegroom sat together under the apple trees, heavy with blossoms. The sweet smell of lilacs in her memory, Elizabeth thought of another day in May, just as lovely as this one, the day they had buried her daughter Rachel. While Esther served the molasses cakes and apple butter, Hannah held little Susan and watched Ben, playing tag with the Gaiman grandsons. Slapping him on the back, Jacob said to Joshua, Congratulations, little brother. You've met your match. Rebecca and Joshua are so happy, Hannah thought. My parents are joyful for them. I wish I had some joy of my own. June arrived, rainy and cool, far different from last year. Hannah searched for black cherries and elderberries for her medicines. Walking through the woods to the stream, she gathered a cluster of primroses and daisies, 
and watched two chattering squirrels scampering from branch to branch like two friends out for a stroll. Kneeling down, she ran her hand back and forth in the chilly water. A year since Thomas left, she wondered what direction he went, perhaps west beyond the Susquehanna or north to the New York colony. Was he still alive? Her thoughts were haunted with unanswered questions. She picked up a stone and threw it into the stream. Mama says I should forget about Thomas and Mary Daniel Schultz. She pulled herself to her feet. A morning dove cooed softly in the distance. I cannot forget Thomas. I can never forget him. Clutching the shipping notice in his hand, Father Johann read the amazing words. His church bell had arrived in Philadelphia. He rushed to find his church plans, plans that had been carefully stored in his chest for more than a decade. He remembered the day that he had drawn them. Coming back from a long ride across the Blue Mountains, he had returned to his rough cabin and meager congregation, recalling the stone mileposts that had been placed on the road through the valley. He said to himself, "Lord, I need your mark here in Penn's woods. Along the Rhine, we can see the cathedrals built to your glory. But what have we here?" I will build a small church out of stone from the valley. There are stone farmhouses built by the valley masons. Why not a church? That very winter, he drew up the plans and set them aside, for it would be many years until he could collect all the materials he would need. Little by little, he saved his mission funds. One year, he had the beams cut at the sawmill and stored them in his barn. The next, he ordered glass panes from London and had waited another year before they arrived, and more months until a kind neighbor brought them back from Philadelphia. Wrapping each one carefully, he had placed them in the barn with the beams. He wrote about his church to his friends at Heidelberg. When they sent him the bell, he knew it was time to begin. He hurried across the bridge to the barn. Peter, Peter, are you here? I need you. The bell for my church has arrived in Philadelphia. How can I get it? Peter finished pouring the corn in the trough. That problem is easily solved. We'll rent Heinrich Mueller's wagon and go first to Germantown and then to the city. I need to see the land broker in Germantown, and Joshua wants to buy bricks for his baking oven and presents for his new bride. We'll bring back your bell, said Peter, shutting the gate. I only wish we could bring back some happiness for Hannah. Father Johann surveyed the carriages hurrying along the gravel streets of Philadelphia. Sitting with Peter and Joshua in the rented wagon, the shipping notice folded securely in his pouch. He was on an uncertain mission, looking for his church bell, sent by the good professors of Heidelberg University. The city was crowded with vegetable markets and taverns. Busy ships unloaded molasses and coffee from the Indies. Barrels of flour waited to be shipped to England. Ignoring the stench from the tanneries and the slaughterhouses along the Delaware River, the men searched from warehouse to warehouse. They examined dozens of wooden crates in musty rooms until they found one addressed to Father Johann. 
to Father Johann Young of New Canaan. Hands on his hips, the warehouse man squinted at his visitors. This bell has been here for two months. It's a good thing that somebody didn't take it. I have had other shipments stolen. He stared at the priest's crucifix. I need some kind of a document that says you are the real owner. I have this letter of shipment. Father Johann showed him the letter. I am willing to pay the shipment costs and the duty on the bell. Isn't that enough? Take the bell, the warehouse man shouted. But if I find that it belongs to somebody else, I'll take you to court. Turning away from the river, they drove through crowds of beggars, seeking alms and paws for fine carriages, driven by matched black horses. They marveled at the stately brick houses and caught glimpses of green lawns and rose gardens through the carved iron gates. At each corner, they saw the five-sided boxes for their night watchmen. They were stopped by a large crowd, crowd gathered at the London Coffee House. This is where the merchants gathered to exchange the news, said Father Johann. I wonder what is happening. The crowd made way for a motley band of marchers, tied to one another with ropes. Leading them was a tall, bearded man who appeared to be a ship's captain. Young, old, some marchers strode ahead defiantly while others, heads down, shuffled along. All were shabbily dressed. What a sorry lot, someone called. Others began laughing. Halt, the captain shouted. This lot is up for sale. Who wants a sturdy workman or a house made for seven years? They must be the redemptioners, Father Johann said. It's a shame that people have to be sold for their passage money. But the ship's captain is paid handsomely, and for him, business is business. At the back of the line walked a man with a crutch. He was wearing a soiled shirt and heavy wool pants, obviously his only clothes. His long brown hair and ragged beard showed some signs of combing. He seemed to be young, although it was hard to tell. Unconcerned, he stopped when ordered. When the negotiations began, he drew a piece of wood and a knife from his pouch and began to carve. Father Johann stared at his crutch, delicate with carvings. That carving reminds me of a design in the cathedral at Cologne. It is from the Cologne Cathedral, said the man, holding out his crutch. The priest got out of the wagon. You have seen the Cologne Cathedral? I have seen every cathedral from Heidelberg to Cologne. Now I am trying to remember them in my wood. You have a real talent, said Father Johann. You should be back in Europe with the masters. The masters? They don't have enough bread to feed their own families, let alone a wandering carver. Why are you here? I tried to get work all along the Rhine, but there was none. Father Johann studied the man. Something about this stranger moved him. Was it because he had seen his beloved Heidelberg? his lack of bitterness, the beautiful crutch. Johann prayed, Lord, what are you asking me to do? He turned to Peter. Now that Joshua is married and has moved away, you need someone to help you. What about this young man? He seems strong enough. I will pay for his passage if you will give him a home. Peter hesitated. 
Surprised by the sudden decision about his future, the man looked from one to another. I'm a good carpenter, too. I can make tables and chairs. What about a cradle? We'll need a cradle, said Joshua, and furniture for the house. Papa, we could use a carpenter. Peter wondered what Elizabeth would say if they brought home this stranger. Shaking his head as if to rid himself of the thought, he stepped toward the man. Yes, Father Johan, Johan has a good idea. I have a barn and animals to care for. As Joshua says, we can use a carpenter. There is a sawmill, sawmill nearby, said Joshua. Many people in your kingdom would like tables and chairs. We can stop in Germantown for any tools we need. Peter looked at the young man. Is this arrangement acceptable to you? Anything is acceptable to me, the redemptioner answered. I will give you good service during my seven years. I don't intend to own any man, said Father Johann. I will pay for your passage. In turn, I ask you to help my friend for a year. After that, you will be free to go wherever you please. The redemptioner looked from the priest to the others. Only a year? How can I ever repay you? Father Johann smiled. The day God has given me a bell. I believe God will find a way for you to repay us. By the way, what is your name, and where are you from? My name is David Yoder. I was born in Cologne, but as a child I was sent to live with my grandmother in Moselkern, a little village near Koblenz. You've probably never heard of it. Father Young tried not to betray the sudden surprise that gripped him. He thought, Moselkern. Moselkern was the home of Thomas Jaeger. Chapter 19 of Wilderness Path, a novel by Mary Jane Schneider. And joining us for chapter 19 is Michael Wan, the original McQuan that I've spoke of many times throughout the reading of this novel, and he'll be joining us to read part of chapter 19 as we then get to reminisce about the reading that happened about a year ago, where at that time he actually did most of the reading at bedtime to me and Naomi. And so let us begin chapter 19. Hungry, wet, Weakened from their travels, Sunrising's family and Thomas straggled into Kehane. In the final week of their journey, it had rained so steadily that even their feather robes did not protect them from the insistent weather. They had forded the creek that took them to the final valley, their damp deerskin leggings clinging to their legs. As they arrived, silent Lenape watched, no one held out a hand in welcome. No one said, sit by my fire and warm yourself. No one offered them stew from their cooking pots. Staring, they looked with questions in their eyes at the Shuanuk, dressed as a Lenape who came with them. I am looking for my son, wandering deer, said Sunrising to an older man, who appeared to be the leader. He may be traveling with his uncle, Silverwolf. The older man shrugged. Many Lenape come through here on their way to the Ohio lands. I cannot remember them all. 
he pointed to Thomas. The Shuanuk, is he a traitor? We have seen enough of cheating Shuanuk traitors. He is not a traitor, said Sunrising. He is a friend traveling with us. See, he comes with bare hands. The old man stared at Thomas, then turned to Sunrising. Will you stay here or continue west? We will stay. It has been a hard winter. We need to hunt for food and plant corn. We ask to become members of your clan, and we seek the hospitality of your sweat lodge. Are you the Sashem here? I am Grey Fox, the shaman of this village, he snorted. You want to become members of our clan? There is no Lenape clan here. We were driven from our ancestors' hunting grounds in the Topahawken Valley by greedy Shuanuk. They came and stole our lands without even a treaty. We have lost our homes and our clans. Many of our people have died from strange diseases. No one honors us. No one calls us grandfathers, as they did of old. Where are our clans? They are wandering everywhere. Some were first forced north. Peter Chartier has taken the Shawnee beyond the Allegheny and into the arms of the French. The French. At least they do not take our land as the English do. They take only our furs. He shrugged. Where are our Sashems? Sasunan is drunk in Shemokin. Chingas travels to the western Ohio lands, away from both the English and the French. Captain Hill is the Sashem of Kitane, but he is usually hunting. Gray Fox turned, so welcome to Kitane. Surrounded by weary villagers, Sun Rising and his family took abandoned lodge poles and barked to make a temporary shelter on the river flat by the Allegheny. The women of the village were kind enough to give bright feather corn and beans to eat, then seeds for planting and fish scraps for fertilizer. She chose an empty spot by the river for her crops. The grandfathers watched them silently as they shaped their flint. The grandmothers stole secret glances as they braided their rush mats. When the weather warmed the sap in the trees, Sun Rising and Soaring Hawk built a bark house. The whole family set to work fashioning the hickory saplings for the frame. After young Sun tried, tied the saplings together with pieces of bark, the men slit large pieces of bark from the oak trees and laced them to the frame. They overlapped the sheets as the protection from the rain. Young Sun helped Thomas build his own small house. Bright Feather searched the stream banks and wood for healing herbs and laid them in the sun for dry. What plants are you collecting? asked Thomas. She pointed to each one. Here is sinkfoil to cure fevers. Motherwort aids women in their time of delivery. Ginseng is given to babies for colic. May apple is for stiffness, sorrel for snake bites, coltsfoot for coughs and sore throat, jack in the pulpit for a headache. 
the roots must be dried in the sun. Then we will grind them into a fine powder and offer our prayers for healing to the Manitou. Thy Bergfrau told me about these plants, he said. I want to learn how you prepare them. When the weather turned warm, Sunrising gave Thomas a basket and taught him how to fish with a sharpened pole. You are not yet strong enough to go hunting. You catch the fish and we will hunt. He and his son left in the dark so that they could surprise the deer at dawn. Although it took long marches, they found game. They shared their game with the shaman and the grandfathers and the grandmothers. I give you some meat, Sunrising told them, according to Lenape custom. Brightfeather and her daughters hoed their corn in the field by the river and wove baskets from the reeds they gathered. Slenderwillow took clay from the river to fashion into cooking pots. Kneading the clay into coils, she wound the coils on top of each other and smoothed them with a wooden paddle. After drying her pots in the sun, she covered them with dried corn cobs and fired them until they glowed with the heat. Carving his own stick, young son joined the village boys in spirited games of lacrosse. He became a friend of the shaman's two grandsons, older brother and younger brother. They forded the river to explore caves on the far banks. Gentle Dove joined the girls of the village to hike the woods for strawberries, raspberries, and currants. We did not eat them all, she told her mother. We saved some to dry for our winter tea. The villagers did not stare anymore. The newcomers had found their place. Coming up the path from the river, Sun Rising and Thomas carried the basket, heavy with fish. Bright feather, her husband called. We have brought dinner, cleaned and ready to put on the coals. Just enough time for Thomas to get dry. Still dripping with water, Thomas grinned. I was spearing a large trout when I lost my balance and fell into the river. He held up the basket, but I got my fish. How fortunate that you had good fishing, Bright Feather said. We have visitors, our cousins, Young Eagle and Morning Star, and their daughter have come. Now we can have a welcoming feast for them. Sun Rising held out his hand. Young Eagle, welcome. I thought you had gone west with your parents last winter. No, Morning Star and I stayed behind in Makunji with the grandmother. She was too old to travel. We took care of her until her spirit left her. Young Eagle stared at Thomas, who joined them by the fire. A Shawinuk lives with you? Sunrising answered, Yes, it is a long story. Come, eat, and tell us your travels. Young Eagle picked up an ear of corn out of the fire. Before we came west, my uncle, he spent part of the winter with your old home in Hidden Valley. We saw a friend of yours, Die Bergefrau. Die Bergefrau? I thought we would never hear of her again, said Brightfeather as she placed the fish on the hot coals. She had not noticed that Thomas moved closer to them. Tell us how this happened. Young Eagle looked at his wife. 
I will let Morningstar tell you this part of the story. Morningstar shifted her sleeping daughter from her shoulder to her lap. After we buried the grandmother, our daughter crawled toward the fire and fell on the hot stones. We knew we needed some healing skills of Dibergafrau. So we walked directly to her cabin. She held up her daughter. Look how well she is healed. Young Eagle wrapped a piece of fish in a grape leaf and handed it to his wife. While we were there, we met a young woman who was living with the Bergefrau, very beautiful, with dark hair and eyes, and she seemed very sad. Thomas moved so close to Morningstar that he seemed to hover over her. A young woman, do you remember her name? Her name was Hannah. Thomas sat on a rock and looked at the rushing waters. Hannah with de Bergfrau, why? His thoughts were swirling as the water was swirling, first one way, then another. Should I go back to Hannah, or should I go to the Ohio lands and look for Sarah Bidler? I know now that Sarah is alive. He walked through the woods beside the river. Not watching where he was walking, he stumbled on a rock. Falling on his knees, he clasped the rock as he prayed, Lord, I am in your woods, but I seem too far from you to find you. Father Johann, are you praying for me? Chapter 20 of Wilderness Path, a novel by Mary Jane Schneider. Back in New Canaan. After wandering the Rhine for more than a decade, Homeless and without steady work, David Yoder now had a roof over his head and bread for his stomach. You can sleep in the summer house, Peter said. The women may need it for cooking or washing clothes during the day, but it is yours when their work is done. He brought him a wash basin and some of Jacob's clothes. Elizabeth covered a corn husk mattress with one of her quilts. Exhausted, hands raw, back aching, David went to bed with the setting sun. True, he did not have to work in the fields, but he fed and watered the animals. Steadying himself against the fence, he chopped logs into kindling and carried the wood to the summer house in a sling he had devised. Peter met him at the barn. Don't work so hard. Take some time to begin your carpentry. Rebecca and Joshua will need a cradle and more chairs for their living room. While the women cooked in the summer house, David sat outside at the schnitzel bank he made and smoothed the boards with his draw knife. Quietly, not intruding, he sensed that Elizabeth grudgingly accepted his arrival as the too generous gesture by her friendly husband and his impulsive neighbor. To her, he was simply another mouth to feed. And Hannah, the lovely remote Hannah. Sometimes they walked side by side, but always in separate worlds. He took small comfort in knowing that Hannah was aloof with everyone. When they went to Sunday meeting, she was as remote with her neighbors as she was with him. Sometimes he would come in for supper and find her gone. Young Abraham Sensenig is sick, Elizabeth would say. They sent for Hannah. 
The next day she returned, her same quiet self. Only once did he see a glowing woman emerge from her shell, when he overheard her tell her mother about delivering the baby. He struggled to conceal his joy at her happy words. That first tiny cry, what a beautiful sound. Only one rare moment, then the veil was drawn again. Comfortable as it was, David felt hemmed in by his new life. He was restless for the Rhine. The weaver's world centered on their farm. They journeyed only as far as their Mennonite neighbors and their meeting house. Unexpectedly, Peter pointed him in a new direction. It's the Sabbath. No work today. Why don't you visit Father Johann? After all, you belong to him as much as to us. Crossing the bridge, he found the priest sitting on a large rock. Ah, David, come join me. This is my dreaming stone. He turned to him. Tell me, what do you see? Hearing politely, intently, David said, I see trees. Only trees? Yes, that is true, but I see a church. A stone church, not large, but a thing of beauty with the bell that my friends at Heidelberg have sent me. Can you see it, David, young carver of cathedrals? Yes, but is it possible? With God, all things are possible. I have already talked to stone masons in the Oli Valley. Johann put his hand on David's shoulder. And God has sent me someone to carve the altar and chancel rail. Has he not? There is black walnut wood waiting for me at the sawmill. David was silent. Carve for Father Johann's church? It would be a challenge. He turned to Johann. I haven't thought about God in a long time. Perhaps he did send me. The priest looked at the empty woods. But I need to remember the psalm. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. For David, what began as a casual visit led to serious planning for the priest's new church. During the day, he helped Peter at the barn or worked at his carpentry, but after supper, he came alive with his carving. Here I am, Father Johann, with my knife. Just Johann, the priest said, I am your friend, not your priest. I usually spend this time reading the Psalms. Do you mind if I read as you carve? A pattern of reading and carving emerged. David smoothed the wood. Father Johann read, The heavens show forth the glory of God, and the firmament declareth the work of his hands. David carved. Father Johann read, Day to day uttereth speech, and night to night showeth knowledge. David fitted one piece into another. Father Johann read, there are no speeches nor language where their voices are not heard. Laying aside his Bible, Johann said, I would like to see the sky above Heidelberg once more. He spoke of his beloved university, his walks along the Neckar River to the village of Ellingenberg, just to wander in the shops of the Marketplatz and kneel in the quiet of the Heibelskirche. Intrigued by this learned man in the midst of Penn's woods, 
David was content to listen. He felt the priest's loneliness as he felt his own. David, I talk too much, but it is good to have someone to talk with. At the university, my students and I spoke of philosophy and history. Here, my parishioners talk about crops and the weather. They consult their almanacs so that they can plant their peas at the exact waxing of the moon. At the university, I met young men eager to learn. Here, I struggled to teach my reluctant students their alphabet. He looked at the silent carver. Tell me about your life along the Rhine. How did you get to see all the cathedrals? Intent on his work, David spoke without looking up. I was told I was born in Cologne. My earliest memories are of church bells. Somehow, I came to live with my grandmother in her house at the edge of the village of Moselkern. We had a small garden, a few chickens. He paused, not knowing if he was ready to trust this priest, if he was ready to reveal the memories he had tried so hard to bury. My grandmother told me nothing about my life before I came to live with her. She would not talk about my mother. She said she thought she could escape by running away to the city. What did she get? The smallpox that killed her. My grandmother's voice sounded harsh, but she had tears in her eyes. Ah, David, even though your grandmother lost her daughter, she had you, and she gave you the gift of a home. Musselkern, you lived in the beautiful Musel Valley. Yes, it was beautiful. I had a special friend who loved the woods. We would climb to the highest hill and watch the boats on the river. But, much as I loved the woods, I loved his mother's kitchen more. It was always fragrant with the smell of baked bread. She always gave me a loaf to take home to my grandmother. You did not need your crutch when you were young. My leg was not always twisted. As a child, I could run and play, he paused. I still dream about running, Johann insisted, but something happened. Yes, something happened when I was ten. I was playing in the woods with my friend when my grandmother's house caught fire. We ran home. I was injured when I rushed in to try to find her. He looked away. She died in the fire. I had no other relatives, so they sent me to a workhouse in Koblenz. I never went back to Musselkern. A workhouse? The priest put his hand on David's shoulder. David, I am sorry that I asked these persistent questions. Forgive the curiosity of an old priest who still longs for the Rhine and for Heidelberg. David sighed. I need to rid myself of the anger of those memories and be thankful for my life now. He rose to leave. Father Johann, I was baptized a Catholic. In Moselkern, I went to the Catholic Church with my grandmother. I would like to come to your church. The Mennonite meeting house is plain and the service so different. He hesitated. But, my friend, said the priest, if you want to stay close to the weavers, you will need to become a Mennonite. David smiled. You read my mind. Yes, if I want to stay close to the weavers, I will need to become a Mennonite. I want to stay close to Hannah. 
he shrugged. She could have the pick of any young man at the meeting, but she is not interested in any of them. So why would she be interested in me? Pausing to rest their horses at the top of the mountain, David and Hannah appeared through the falling leaves to find the path through the woods. Your father was right about this hill. Crossing Krupa Berg is not an easy journey. Hannah had been summoned to the Melker farm across the mountain to take care of young Elam, who had fallen out of a tree. Peter and Elizabeth had insisted that she could not go alone. Descending into the valley, they found the house easily and saw the boy lying on the cabin porch. Hannah opened her medicine pouch and gave his mother dried dogwood bark. Heat some water and put this in it. The tea might help ease his pain. David kept his distance while Hannah hovered over the child. Stroking his damp hair, she talked to him softly. David marveled. This was a Hannah he had never seen. This passive, remote Hannah had miraculously changed into someone alive and with purpose. As the boy dozed, Hannah gently touched his arms and legs. They seem badly bruised, she frowned. But this arm has a broken bone. The Bergfrau showed me how to put a bone back in place. I'm not sure if I can do it properly, but I'll try. She said to the boy's father, I will need two thin cedar boards. We will place his arm between the boards and tie the boards with thongs. Then you will have to wait, perhaps a month, to see if the bones come back together again. Do you have a schnitzelbank? David can smooth the boards we need. He is very good. David worked swiftly with his shore hands, covering the boards with a piece of cloth. Hannah gently placed them around the boy's arm. As they started home, Hannah said to him, It was good that you came. I am glad that you were here to make the boards for the splint. They rode in silence, but inwardly David shouted, Perhaps there is hope for me after all. And that is chapters 18, 19, and 20. While we were reading chapters 18 through 20, uh, early in 2023, probably early spring, we had our own trip planned to Pithane, which is now the greater Pittsburgh area. And so we had some, we had a mission or a journey to take to visit with colleagues who do work similar to Michael's in exploring the geomantic uh, landscape and the history of, from tribal history to ancient civilization history of an area. And so we were going to Pittsburgh to the river in Pittsburgh where three rivers, Michael, what are the rivers? We, the Allegheny River. The Mangahena, is that the underground one? Okay. Okay. Okay, so the Allegheny, the Mangahenga, and the Ohio. 
and then there's a fourth underground river. So we were going to Pittsburgh to the intersection of these four rivers and then going around to different areas of Pittsburgh to get different perspectives on the city and what 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 is kind of underneath like what what is right below the surface anyway that's a whole that's a whole nother uh that's a whole nother pot of stew but that area of pittsburgh and kithane that's referenced in chapter 19 they were on this long voyage having to wait out the winter closer to our area where we were living in Bechtelsville. And so at the same time that the spring broke and they were able to get to Kithane, when the spring broke for us, we were taking our journey to Pittsburgh, which is uh, in the same area as Kithane. And in diving into the history, just the way, in, in very similar ways that Mary Jane Schneider is diving into the history in the wilderness path. Um, pulling on facts, but then also laying story over top of those facts to color in the subjective uh, narratives that we, we can never objectively know. But for sure they were happening, because when are subjective narratives never not happening? Double negative is tricky, but they're always happening. Uh, so... That's the synchro, synchronized kind of mystical element of chapters 18 through 20 is we were, we were in alignment with the movement of the Lenape in, in some small sense. And um, in chapter 20, um, when Father Johann is reading the Psalms, he one of the Psalms says, the firmament declareth the work of his hands, the work of his hands being the work of God, the firmament being the sky. And then Johann says that he would like to see the sky above Heidelberg once more. And then, you know, just a short while later, he talks about how the parishioners talk of crops and the weather, consulting their almanacs so that they can plan to plant their peas at the exact waxing of the moon. So just in that short section of chapter 20, what came up for me so strongly that hadn't come up back in early 2023 when the three of us were reading this together and what's just now occurring to me is just how present the kind of spirituality of the sky has become in this book in making, you know, MJ is very purposeful about the chapters where that are about the Lenape time passes by uh, the names of the moon. And now, and I think she has said in previous chapters, but just in such a short, short section, we get multiple doses of just how deeply people were connected to and in sync with the sky and how the almanac which is a you know a record of occurrences happening in the sky how much of their lives was determined by what the almanac said and the almanac was written and determined by what was going on in the heavens um and the firmament 
was is this concept that I've learned not from reading Wilderness Path, but around that same time that I was reading Wilderness Path for the for the first full time with Michael and Naomi, I learned about the firmament um, from Michael actually, and the firmament became this this huge concept for me this year in 2023, um, and ever since I learned about the firmament more and more just kept popping up um, about the history and the beliefs, what the firmament represents. And it's neat to hear it here as a part of scripture. And part of the history is that the firmaments were like the reason that the European cathedrals and churches had those huge domes on the inside was to represent the sky and was to represent what they considered to be like the great mother, the great, uh, the great void, the great out there and unknown. And, you know, what was up there? God and the angels and all that was worshipped. And so the firmament um, was spiritually, religiously all tied together. But then um, for the for the more grounded folk, the farmers, they were also taking record and making record of what was happening in the sky because that determined what they did in the ground. And so just how, you know, Father Johan is like, oh, like, I miss my philosophical kind of spiritual community of people back at the university and all the farmers want to do is talk about their crops. And all the while long, these things that he's talking about, they're all so deeply connected. Uh, the firmament, the sky, the moon, the almanac, uh, just the longing to be under, under the canopy of the heavens. Um, and so that has become a, a huge theme and influence in our lives. Michael is an astrologer, so naturally that's always been a part of his life. Um, but I've I've moved into doing more teaching about the moon and about the effects of the moon on our bodies, um, energetically on our bodies, on women's bodies also specifically, and, and how our bleeding cycles correspond with moon phases. Um, so it's just another touch, again, of how Mary Jane she just plops in these little, these little winks and these little nods of themes that for me in this past year have been huge epiphanies and they're so rooted in, in my ancestors of this land and my ancestors of my homeland. And um, yeah, it's just a really interesting and beautiful way to see these concepts not just be concepts, but they're woven into a subjective fictional narrative that could very well be a real story that actually happened. Um, and the first time I read this or had this read to me by Michael uh, for Naomi's bedtime, I did not catch on to the fact that David Yoder is in fact a Catholic, just like Thomas Yeager was a Catholic. And now we are finding our dear Hannah, um, 
coming up in, in the narrative again in regards to romance. And we, I mean, I know it happens because I've, I've read the book, uh, but we will see what unfolds between David Yoder and Hannah. But I felt like even more, uh, we joked about how MJ was writing a historical fiction soap opera. Um, and I'm feeling even more how how much of a a soap opera this is with some of the hidden information being more clear to me as as I'm reading it now instead of just listening to it um, I, I'm catching more of the details so I hope you've enjoyed chapters 18 through 20 and you're finding that your passages are becoming ever more wild and your paths becoming uh, becoming ever more clear as maybe some of the magic of this historical fiction and novel is touching your ears and your life. And if you're interested in supporting this project and in supporting the reprints of this book that I have on, on my docket of, of goals to achieve, you can first you can send this send this reading, send this uh, podcast to anyone and everyone that you think would enjoy listening um, as I boost as I boost um, listeners I can begin to monetize the platform and if you want to just give now um, you can go to patreon.com and become a patron of the art of reading a novel aloud and then sharing the the narratives that emerged in our lives from the novel. So this is all an art form that I'm that I'm leaning into. And if you'd like to be a patron of that, you can go to this website called patreon.com and search for loved by the water. That's me. And I have lots of songs and meditations and other fun other fun projects and arts to engage in on that platform. But um, Wilderness Path is also a project on there that can be supported either through a monthly subscription or you can find a link on my Patreon to my PayPal to give a one-time patronization. So thank you for listening and I'll see you in chapter 21. Bye-bye.